Welcome back to Double Truck Stories, home of some of the best features, investigations, and character portraits from across ESPN. I'm Mike Philbrick. Here's an unreleased episode from our former host, Justin Ellis. Greg Oden considers himself to be the biggest bust in NBA history. It's been a decade since the seven-footer was drafted out of Ohio State by the Portland Trailblazers, and as soon as his professional career started, the injuries followed. Three major knee surgeries and 105 games later, Odin was out of the NBA, all but betrayed by a body that seemed to be built solely for the game of basketball. But the pressures of an unfulfilled life in the NBA don't fade so easily. Because when a body breaks, and breaks repeatedly, the mind can follow. For Greg Odin, that turned into a life of isolation and dependency on painkillers and alcohol. In this week's show, Seth Wickersham visits Greg Oden today as he reconciles his past and tries to discover his second act, the follow-up to a basketball career that he likely never wanted. Coming up later, join me for a conversation with Seth about how following Greg Oden up a flight of stairs changed the course of the story. And now, here's Still Standing. Greg Oden has a reoccurring dream. He's playing defense for the Trailblazers. He blocks a shot and passes to the outlet and sprints down court, light and fast and strong. He's three years removed from his last NBA appearance now, trying to build a new life out of the lows of his last one. But in the dream, he can still play. He can still run. He glides to the paint, catches a return pass and dunks. Coast to coast. The crowd explodes. He feels a sweet rush of adrenaline. Fans love him, and he loves himself. All joy and no shame. Odin is in the lobby of the Academic Support Center on the Ohio State campus on a late May morning, registering for classes to finish the degree he started a decade ago. He lived in a dorm a block away at the time. He remembers returning to Columbus after a Final Four run ended in a national championship loss to Florida in 2007. Most assumed he would leave for the NBA, but he came back to go to class. I never planned on leaving, he says. Students waited for him outside his dorm. Cars stopped on the street to stare. It took him 45 minutes to walk one block. Odin called his coach, Thad Mata, and said, I can't get to class. A few weeks later, Odin announced that he would leave for the draft, one of many decisions in his life that really wasn't his to make. Now, ten years, three major knee surgeries, and a failed career later, Odin arrives at the Academic Support Center unnoticed and unbothered, his burden no longer walking to this building, but rather walking up it. Three flights of stairs. That's what he's looking at to reach his advisor's office. At 29, Odin can't jump like he used to. He can't leap at all off his right leg. But he swallows half a flight of stairs in his first step. He gently grunts. His body is hurting and scarred, but he actually looks young. It used to be the opposite. In high school, the deep creases near his eyes led some to suspect he was older than his verified age. Even then, with a seemingly limitless future... He struggled under the pressure placed upon him by his body, by what it seemed capable of, by the way it dictated to him. He was going to play basketball. He was going to be a superstar. He was going to take care of his family. He was going to be a Hall of Famer. The pressures grew when his body failed him. 
Over the course of a decade, he developed a dependency on painkillers and alcohol to sleep, and he was arrested on domestic violence charges. Odin is now a student again, with a fiancé and a nine-month-old daughter, still processing being at the center of a mania and disappointment to which few American athletes can relate. He reaches the top of the first flight of stairs at the Academic Support Center, breathing too hard for the distance, and says, Deadlifts are catching up to me. The day before registering for classes, Odin is in the weight room at the Jerome Schottenstein Center on campus, where he once played and now helps the basketball team as a student assistant coach. He places just two 45-pound weights on a bar. I've got nothing to prove, he jokes with a shrug, and deadlifts it, bending and straightening his fragile knees. In between sets, he describes himself as the biggest bust in NBA history, as if saying it out loud will give it some sort of dominion over the pain of it. Before the NBA, Odin had never had a serious knee injury. Not at Sarah Scott Middle School in Terre Haute, Indiana, where he first worked hard at basketball. Not at Lawrence North in Indianapolis, where he won three consecutive championships and was a two-time Parade All-American. And not during his single season at Ohio State, where he was a first-team All-American. Two lifts into another set, something is off. Coach, Odin hollers, dropping to the bar and easing himself to the ground until he lies flat on his back. Dave Richardson, Ohio State's longtime strength coach, runs out of his office. He crouches down and lifts Odin's right leg, gently shaking his foot, then pulling hard as if he were tugging a rope, his face reddening, Odin wincing for almost a minute before they both feel a pop of relief. Still sweating, Odin explains that when he was in sixth grade, he grew so volcanically, six inches in less than a year, that his right hip detached from its socket. After surgery to place two pins in the joint, Odin enjoyed swinging his gangly legs on crutches down the hallways at school. But though the procedure worked, it left his right leg eight millimeters shorter than his left. He walked with a bit of a dip, leaving people to assume that he was strutting, acting hard. Over time, his body adjusted, but the hip required the occasional heavy tug when it jammed. After Odin was drafted first overall by the Trailblazers in 2007, one pick ahead of Kevin Durant, the team outfitted him with a special orthotic insert to even his legs. Three weeks later, I'm in surgery, he says. Odin can't prove that the orthotic is the sole reason his body collapsed in the NBA. The wheels were in motion for his body to fall apart the moment he hit his first growth spurt on the way to seven feet. Everything in his life has been governed by it since. And now I'm back here, he says at the gym, trying to figure it all out. Halfway up the stairs, Odin slows for a moment before he hits the final stretch. He's slightly hunched over and for a moment doesn't seem that tall. Then he straightens himself, and you wonder how anyone ever got a shot off. He's wearing his own shoe, Nike size 19 in the Trailblazers' colors of red, white, and black, a logo of his last name etched into the heel. Once an embodiment of a bright basketball future, it's now a relic. Odin's friends worried when he was drafted by Portland, not just because he had to move to the Pacific Northwest after spending most of his life in the Midwest. His personality always seemed miscast for his body. He was an introvert, a self-described loner who goes with the flow, who had pictured himself one day being a dentist or a movie critic. 
There was a lingering sadness you felt in his company a decade ago, a fragility as he told you he felt expected and obligated to be the best. Odin always had tried to reckon with what his body was and could be, its power and potential. When he was a 17-year-old junior, he drew up a plus-minus list about whether to enter the NBA draft or to go to college. NBA, set for life, play against the best, could be all-time leading scorer. College, fun, win national title, love Ohio State. He lunched with Kevin Garnett and bowled with Peyton Manning and rode in a limo with Baron Davis. But he also wanted to hide and be a kid, said Reginald Schelt, an assistant at Lawrence North in those years. Odin couldn't disappear off the court, so sometimes he would try to do so on it, content to rebound and block shots. Jack Kiefer, Lawrence North's head coach, instated a 15 touches a game rule for him. He never wanted to be a basketball player, Schelt says. That wasn't his thing. Yes, he played basketball, but basketball didn't define him in his mind. Former Ohio State assistant Alan Majors remembers a jump shot Odin made against Georgetown in the Final Four because it was the Buckeyes' 38th game of the year and Odin had taken just a handful of jumpers all year. GMs nitpicked that Odin didn't dominate the way a seven-footer should, but a perceived red flag was actually a teenager's coping mechanism. He really needed to be 5'11 and a bookworm, Major says. When Odin got to Portland, his isolation wasn't just that of the introverted. It was the isolation of the injured. His knee injury after wearing the orthotics wiped out his first season. At the beginning of his second year, the team gave him an insert so thick it pushed his right ankle past the rim of his high tops. Thirteen minutes into his regular season debut, he sprained his right foot and missed two weeks. Three and a half months later, he chipped his left kneecap and missed more weeks. As Odin's body broke, so did his mind. Afraid of being photographed in public doing anything but rehabbing, he wouldn't leave home, which soon turned into not leaving his bedroom. I tried to get into my own little cocoon, he says. He would lie in bed all day, living with the dull panic that he was the Sam Bowie to Durant's Michael Jordan. You're a bust and you can't do nothing about it, he says now. I'm sitting there watching all these guys get better. Odin went to a dark place. Before he had turned 21, he'd grown used to drinking alone. There are no fake IDs for famous seven-footers. And now, all of the vices that had been creeping into his life for years took over. His nighttime routine became beer, light liquor, dark liquor, champagne, wine, whatever I could get, he says coupled with at least two Percocets, two Vicodin, and at least three sleeping pills. Anything to help him feel less. It got to the point where I was taking so many pills and drinking just to sleep at night that even if I didn't want to drink, I wouldn't be able to sleep, he says. Guilty and ashamed, Odin apologized to Trailblazers management before his 2007 and 2009 surgeries. He was easy to text but hard to get on the phone. I don't know that he had a trusted male figure in his life that could give him good advice, Schelt says. Odin wanted out. He would look at pills and ask, does it make you drowsy? All right, I'm taking it. I was like, if I don't wake up, whatever, he says. In 2009, Odin started seeing a therapist. Each session began with 10 minutes of silent meditation. He cut back on the heavy drinking and hired a personal chef. 
through the first 20 games of that season, he played well and enjoyed himself, showing flashes of his original promise. But in December, he jumped to challenge a shot by Aaron Brooks of the Rockets. Their knees bumped midair. Odin felt a hollow pop. The Blazers trainer held Odin's head to the floor so that he couldn't look down at his kneecap, mangled and split. Teammate Brandon Roy hustled to his side and said, Oh my God, and backed away. The only thing Odin remembers from the night in 2012 when the Trailblazers cut him, after three more years and three more knee surgeries, is that he drank enough to not remember anything. The Heat signed him in 2013, but he played sparingly that season, and the team let him walk. Soon after, on August 7, 2014, Odin was supposed to be with the Ohio State basketball team in the Bahamas, volunteering on a summer tour, but he bailed at the last minute. He went to a club with his on-and-off-again girlfriend at the time, Christina Green, and he coupled beers with shots. They returned to the house of Odin's mother, Zoe, and started arguing. Zoe and a friend of Green's tried to calm him down, but Odin swatted them out of the way, pushed Green onto a couch, and hit her three times, according to a police report. The last blow split open her forehead, drawing blood. Odin's mother pulled him off, and Green's friend called 911. Odin also called 911, ordered an ambulance, and turned himself in. I was wrong, he told police, and I know what has to happen. Odin pleaded guilty to a felony charge of battery with moderate bodily injury, for which he received probation, a fine, and an order to attend counseling and Alcoholics Anonymous classes. Almost three years later, he thinks often about that night, though he can't discuss it in much detail due to the terms of a civil suit. I just want to be a good example for my fiancé and daughter, he says. He thinks about what will happen when London one day Googles her daddy's name and discovers something much worse than being the biggest bust in NBA history. And he thinks about what he did next, trying to begin a new life. He moved back to Columbus. He reaches the top of the stairs, masking pain. He always hurts somewhere. His knees, his legs, his hip, his back. He talks about goals the way many former NFL players do in terms of just wanting to be able to walk and to be able to pick up his daughter and to be able to make peace with not feeling right, not feeling good, ever again. People sometimes ask if he still plays ball or, worse, look at him with pity in their eyes because they know why he doesn't. He looks like he could still play until he tries to run. He's on a roster for a 5-on-5 summer tournament but whether he'll play is an open question. He loves his identity as a father and husband-to-be, but he needs a professional distinction outside of his current one. So in fall 2014, Odin started showing up at the Schottenstein Center basketball court. He had a support system. Mata would let him come to practices and games and be around the guys, but it was no small feat. A body that once announced his arrival now announced his failures. I tried to find happiness again, he says. One day, Jake Diebler, an OSU video coordinator at the time, introduced himself. I'm a big fan of yours, Diebler said. They became friends, and Odin became Diebler's project. He was out of shape, in constant pain, bereft of confidence, and still feeling the pressure to somehow right or wrong, both with his career and his criminal actions. 
he would often cancel their morning workouts, claiming his knees hurt. Rather than a full workout, let's do half, Diebler would say, and Odin would relent. He was lost, says Diebler, now an assistant at Vanderbilt. It hurt my heart to see him go through what he did. But it was also cool to see him go through it. Odin could no longer rely on his physical dominance, so he practiced hooks and jumpers. By the summer of 2015, he landed tryouts with the Mavericks and Hornets, but received no offers. The only chance came from the Jiangsu Dragons of the Chinese Basketball Association. He took it. In the preseason, he injured his thumb, missing three weeks. But he didn't fall apart. He returned to play 25 games. That he had even gotten himself in shape to play felt like enough of a win. I was actually ready to play basketball, he says. It was more than a chance to walk off the court with a new semblance of peace. It was an invisible victory upon which the rest of his life would be built. He enters the office of John Macko, his academic counselor. Odin sits opposite Macko, knees touching the bottom of the desk. Odin still has a lot of the $24 million he made in his career, but he knows how quickly the life he thought he'd have can disappear. He might coach, might broadcast, might go into business. Who knows, he says. Energetic and excited to see Odin, Mako plays a video made years ago in which famous OSU athletes tout the school's academics. You seen it, Mako says? I haven't seen it, Odin says. Odin is the first athlete to appear. Oh man, he says, shaking his head. So skinny. His old life will always follow him, haunting him, even if he tries to define a new one. He didn't throw away his future. His body broke before he could experience it. He is often asked to give motivational speeches, but he doesn't know what to say. I don't think I have an ending yet, he says. On the first day of school last fall, Odin stood in line for his student ID card, surrounded by freshmen. Last semester, he took a class about NCAA rules and regulations, a class he lived, but he still did his required reading. He grinds as if something larger than a degree is at stake. Macau switches screens to Odin's student profile. Odin seems antsy, staring at his accumulated credits. He registers for advanced math and history of sports. Now the number of credits left for his degree appears on the screen. He leans in. That's all you've got left, Macau says. Oh, really, Odin says? He's closer than he realized. He leans back, feeling a little lighter. I'm chopping away at it, he says. He'll likely receive his degree in two years. He smiles and says, I need to eat. He will go next door to a greasy spoon called Hangover Easy, one of his favorite spots from his first run as a student. People will stare at him as he enters, as he ducks below low ceilings. He'll find a quiet table and relax, ordering both breakfast and lunch. A waiter will welcome him back and give him a card for free food. Someone else will shake his hand and walk away, saying, That's my man. He will then go home and play with London. A good morning will become a good day. But first, Odin walks down the stairs of the Academic Support Center, back to the first floor. His steps are slow and studied, but they are steady, so much easier than the way up.
And that was Still Standing, written by Seth Wickersham. Seth joins us now to talk about the story. Thanks for being here, Seth. Thank you, Justin. So with a subject like Greg Oden, you know, he's someone who, if you're an NBA fan or maybe just a sports fan in general, we think we know a lot of his story. What was it that you wanted to know that maybe wasn't already out there about him? Well, I think the first thing I wanted to know was what life was like for him right now. You know, he has, he's a very unique man in America in the sense that he's seven feet tall and can play basketball and he's incredibly talented. And, you know, those are very rare creatures. And I wanted to know what it was like to have a body that once sort of announced basketball future and now announced uh, a certain kind of failure. Um, So that was the primary thing I wanted to know. And then... Years ago, when he was in high school, I spent a lot of time with him for a story, and I always got the sense that he had kind of a lingering sadness, um, you know, underneath a lot of the fame and notoriety that he was getting um, as a 16, 17, 18-year-old. And I think I followed his career in the NBA, and the sense that I always had was that, you know, for a long time... I didn't know how much he really wanted to be a basketball player versus how much those decisions were kind of made for him by virtue of his body. Yeah. And so I wanted, uh, I think for the longest time I thought that his body was kind of propping up his mind. And then when his body started to fall apart, I think his mind broke too. And, um, you know, that was very true. Well, let's dig into that a little bit more. How, how did you sort of, how did you dig into this question of whether he really wanted to play basketball? Because that's obviously a, a theme that's that's a big part of this story. In, was it just a matter of going back and talking to people? Sort of was he open about this himself? How how did you sort of pull out that thread a little bit more? Yeah, I, I asked more directly to other people, but with him, I think that he, you know, he had a. Um, a rise and a celebrity and a disappointment that very few American athletes have had, and he's still processing it. And so I think that when I was talking to him about it, I brought it up in different ways. You know, I I think I could safely assume that, you know, being seven feet tall and having his type of athletic ability and, you know, living in a basketball crazy state that certain decisions were made for him. And so I would just ask him, you know, what are examples of those? And, um, did it go back as far as, you know, the um, inclination to pick up a basketball and to play? And I, I'm not sure it quite went back that far, but I think that there was definitely mom- key moments in his life that um, were essentially dictated to him by virtue of his athletic ability. And I found yeah. that very interesting. Yeah, I mean, you've got that great quote from from someone that, that, you know, he would have been better off if he was, you know, 5'11 and a bookworm or something like that. It feels like it... It's, it, it says everything. So the, the story starts out with the dream sequence, and why did you want to start there? Um, it was actually the suggestion of my editor, Eric Neal. Uh, I think that I had that lower in the story, and he saw it as a way... It was when I was first sort of starting to write it. Um, I did something I usually don't do, which is I sent him you know, a third of the story so far just to see what he thought about it. And I think that that dream sequence was the end of the third that I had sent him. And he suggested beginning with it because it was um, 
an intimate window into his mind right off the bat. And I think that, you know, whenever you're writing these stories, especially about famous people, you want them to feel intimate and you want to have, can, you know, show the reader these, their, their innermost thoughts. And I think that that was a way to do it was to, um, you know, look at these dreams and sort of give them a little bit of a, a preview about what they meant and what might be coming in the story. Right. Right. Well, how much time did you actually spend with Greg and what were you hoping to get from him and, and what was the reality of your time with him? Um, I was there for a couple of days. I didn't, um, I think I just wanted a glimpse of his life, you know? I mean, that was kind of all that I wanted. You know, I usually just want to try to like, when, when you hang out with athletes and the stories, you know, have that element of access, you just want to get a glimpse of what they would be doing anyway. And, you know, take as many notes as you possibly can. And there's that moment in the story where he's walking up the stairs and he said that those deadlifts are catching up to me. And if I hadn't written that down, I actually don't know how I would have written the story. Cause at the moment I didn't think I was, you know, I didn't necessarily see the significance in him climbing the, the three levels of stairs. And he sort of um, gave me a, a brief glimpse into the significance of it when he said that. And it kind of, um, you know, raised my repertorial antenna. Well, I'm glad you, you brought that up because that was actually going to be one of my questions. The, the Using the stairs as the framework, what made you, it sounds like that was sort of the, the light bulb that went off there. Yeah, it's a body, it's a story for the body issue. And so, you know, my job in that is to, you know, show his body, show what it's like to live inside that frame. And, you know... I've learned this a lot covering the NFL and you just see, you know, so much hidden pain that, that, um, most fans don't see. And so I think I'm kind of attuned to that both mentally, you know, both mental pain and physical pain. And, um, you know, Greg is very similar to an NFL player in a lot of ways, you know, his goals, uh, for the rest of his life are very similar to that of NFL players. And I think that, um, you know, my my job with the story was to, you know, write about his body. And, you know, whenever you write about an athlete's body, you always end up writing about their their mind. And so um, those things are connected. And, um, you know, that was what I was trying to get at. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what tell me a little bit more about the sort of the reality of his his physical presence, because you you at several points in the story, you know, you pointing out, you know, he, he groans when he does these things and, and he's got these little pains and what, what is it like when you're in the, his presence? You know, how do you see those things? Yeah. You just, you have to be, you have to listen for them. You have to kind of know and you have to be watching for them because he's not going to tell you, you know, these guys are very tough and they, they're very stoic and they don't like to complain. And so you really have to be ready for it. The weird thing about being, spending so much time around someone seven feet tall is they almost like, you seem to acclimate to them in moments like, you know, when you first get around Greg Oden, you're kind of stunned at how tall he is. And then after you spend a couple hours with him, you actually feel like you're gaining on him. <laughs> and then there's little moments where he'll stand up straight or, 
whatever it is, you know, you'll be in a room with a low ceiling, whatever it is. And, you know, that's when you're really sort of stunned about how tall he is. Um, I'm out here in L.A. at the ESPYs and um, yesterday in the hotel lobby, I was walking through with Chad Millman, who's the editor in chief of ESPN.com and a, uh, a short man. Let's just say that. <laughs> and uh, I look up and who had just checked in to the hotel but Greg Oden. And I had not seen Greg since the story came out. We wow. had just exchanged a couple of texts. And so Greg is coming over and we chat and then I introduce him to Chad and, you know, <laughs> just seeing how tall he was compared to Chad really to sort of fix that in amazingly sharp relief. Yeah. And uh, after Greg walked to the elevators and Chad and I kept walking, Chad goes, wow, he's pretty meaty. <laughs> Well, but then that's interesting because at the same time, though, the, the the picture that you paint when he's in Columbus now as a student is one where it seems like he's anonymous and he almost blends in in some ways that people don't don't pay attention to him. Is it, Was that the reality or is it just the fact that he's just maybe not as famous to to the students today? I think it's all of the above. But I think that um, there's no question that he just doesn't have the notoriety that he had as a student, you know, during his one year there really nine months. Um, there's just no question that he, you know, I think that like anytime you're with somebody that big, people turn around and they spot him and they, they think he's something. And some people might know who he is. Some people think he's a, still a basketball player in Miami. People thought he was LeBron, which was hilarious, <laughs> but, um, you know, there's no rush really. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that heads turn, but I think that's to the extent of it. And so it's quite a bit different than it was when, again, you know, it was 2007 and, you know, everybody thought that they were staring at the next Hall of Fame center. Right, right. Well, with everything that he's been through, you know, how 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 much did he really open up? I guess how introspective is he about all these things that happened? You know, you talk to him, obviously – about all the injuries, you talked to him about the domestic abuse, you know, you talked to him about all these things that he went through, um, you know, how, how sort of open and revealing was he in all those conversations? As open as he could be, but I think he's still processing it. You know, I just think that, like, the subtext of the story is just sort of fame and what it does to you and what's left when, you know, everything that everyone thought you were going to be turned out to not be the case. And you're sort of alone with your thoughts and your own reality. And so I think that's something he's still processing. And I think that, you know, he's um, got some time on his side to figure out what he wants to do with his life, but there's no question that he is trying to figure it out. So he actually says he's the biggest bust in NBA history. And when he says that, I mean, you know, for your read on that, is there is there sadness? Is there regret? Is that is he at peace with that? I mean, that's that's an amazing statement for somebody to make about themselves. Yeah, I think that he sort of means it like, you know, I think that he accepts that he'll be known as that forever. Hmm. Um, there's no way that I think he'll ever be at peace with it. Um, but I did tell him, you know, that I thought that it was really sad that he can just sort of confess that or blurted out without it even really sounding like a confession. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, he kind of laughed and, you know, but 
I think that like that's the reality that he's got to contend with the rest of his life until he is able to redefine himself professionally. Well, Seth, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, thanks for the story. Thanks, Justin. For this story and more, you can go to ESPN.com slash DoubleTruck. This episode was created by the team at ESPN Audio, produced by Michael Rabier here in the studio. The Double Truck team includes Ryan Graner, Rick Santos, Jenna Janovey, and Eric Neal. We'll be back soon with more stories. In the meantime, I'm Justin Ellis. Thanks for listening.